Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. This is a fun episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, but I want to issue a warning. Normally, when I sit down and record episodes of the Australian Investors Podcast, it's probably in terms of difficulty of zero being not very difficult at all and 10 being hard to keep up with. This episode probably ranks at about a 7, 8 or a 9, depending on how long you have been investing. This episode features Kev Tui and Lincoln Smith. Kev's appeared on the show, but Lincoln is very new to this podcast series. These two guys come at investing from a very technical perspective. Kev is an investment consultant who has been on the show before, and Lincoln specializes in alternative investments. We have a bit of fun because Kev, Lincoln, myself, and Drew sit down, all four of us, and we go through a few games, a few investing games. For example, I asked the guys to pick three indicators, one at a time, so each of them one at a time, three indicators that might help them explain the stock market's return over time. We talk about alternatives, we talk about risk asymmetry, and so many different things that kind of go into the heads of these asset consultants and these really deep thinkers. So if you can't keep up with this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, don't worry, you weren't the only one in the room who couldn't, and I'm not talking about Drew. These guys are seriously smart, seriously switched on, so you may need to listen to it twice, or you can just skip ahead to the next episode. This episode was recorded in Noosa with a few fun t-shirts, and it was just a heap of fun for Drew and I to sit down with these two fellas. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, featuring Drew Meredith, Kev Tui, and Lincoln Smith. Again, maybe if you can just, uh, just say your name into the mic, if that's cool. Lincoln Smith. Seems to be fine. Yeah. Better? Well. Yeah, cool. Sorry, guys. My mistake. Never had the fourth mic plugged in. So, <laughs> we'll go again. Uh, Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Thanks for having me back. That's um, it's good. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, great to have you here, mate, as always. Uh, Kev Tui, welcome, mate. Thank you. Thanks back for, back for round two. And Lincoln Smith, new to the ranks. Great to have you with us, mate. Indeed. Thanks for having me. Um, great shirt too great, great shirt, shirt choice <laughs> pineapple slices pineapple strong it's noosa right yeah. it's noosa the sun is not out but <laughs> that's okay we're inside so it doesn't matter uh lincoln it's your first time on the show 
Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do? Sure. So I work as a portfolio analyst for Auburn Partners, which is a global alternatives uh, consultant. Uh, I'll be mainly working with um, Asia-Pacific institutional clients, helping them build private market portfolios, hedge fund portfolios that are meeting various mandates. And I do a little bit of um, uh, research writing on uh, Asian infrastructure managers as well. So really unique amongst the guests that we've had on the show before. Jack, you... Um, I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation with the two of you gents, um, very much you know, contrasting but also similarities in what we're ultimately going for. So we've got a game we want to play. Fully aware that I, in the question we framed it as Australian equities, but this could be equities anywhere, right? So let's take it, let's go anywhere approach. You each get three indicators that might predict three-year performance of equities, right? The game is, we'll take it at, one at a time, but you can't pick the one that the other person just guessed or just used, okay? Fact, factors, factors, macro. Whatever. Whatever indicator you can think Central of. Central bank policy. Central bank, lows. MMT. Yeah, true. You be the judge, Jerry. <laughs> so who should, who should go first? I think we'll put Kevin. Definitely, okay. Definitely Kev. Certainly earnings growth profile, number one. Earnings growth. Why? Um, well, Principally, valuation of equities comes down to your future earnings stream mm-hmm. uh, as a cash flow, or uh, but then gets discounted back. So the two, uh, here I am. I'm going to take the first two. <laughs> <laughs> it is ultimately um, your earnings stream, so the view of that going forward, and then what that gets discounted coming back. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and that can get sort of pulled together into a PE ratio. And that's coming that some of the discussion at the moment is like the US equity market's fallen 30%, but it's still overvalued. Is that? Yeah, because it depends on your view on earnings. View on earnings um, and, and ultimately your view on, on where, that, where the PE ratio can be supported going forward. Yeah. So certainly there's been retracement in, in earnings expectations, but also in the PE ratio. But you know, when, when, they, when they both go together, they, they can be massively positive. When they both go against you, um, yeah, quite detrimental. Now, there's plenty of factors that go in underneath those two, but I think they're probably the, the starting point, if you like, and, and maybe we can pull those, tease those out a little bit more. And okay. not, not to go completely rogue straight away, but I did hear an interesting um, well quote or stat the other day that all of the retracement in equity markets can currently be put down to an increase in the discount rate from cash going up as opposed to any actual changes in earnings. Mm. Interesting. So, Lincoln, what's your... Is that yours? Yours is the discount rate or... Uh, I'm going to cheat, actually. I'm going to say real GDP. So, almost a combination of two things. And why? It kind of feeds into everything, right? Because at, at the end of the day stuff needs to grow in order for economic activity to actually be maintained, but it needs to grow in the real sense of the word. So if you get paid more money, but inflation increases, you feel poorer. And I think that's what everyone's going to have to probably grapple with in the, in the coming couple of years. So if inflation is negative, does that help? It could help, but then, um, yeah, yeah, no, for a while. And then uh, you get into some other scary places where ultimately you don't actually want to buy a car because you feel like it's going to be cheaper next year. Yeah, I'm looking at cars at the moment and it's you know, a new car. It might take nine months, but it's cheaper than a used car, which is mm. kind of... Mm. It's all getting really funky. Yeah. <laughs> in, in New Zealand, it's getting really funky because there is um, a rebate if it's a completely clean car. Yeah. And if it's a diesel, you've got to pay a tax. So ultimately, it's sent mm. kind of the whole car market all around the way. Yeah, it's crazy. 
Kev, you said EPS growth for number one, but I'm guessing number two is then discount rate. It is discount rate. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Take the easy one. <laughs> and then with the, with the GDP, probably the one that goes next off that would be margins. And G- GDP is a great measure of sort of economy wide. And then, you know, ultimately, if you look at the ASX, um, is a microcosm of the of the of the broader uh, economic GDP number focused you know, predominantly on resources and banks, where, mm. whereas you know, the real economy is broader. So um, you know, those, it actually matters what industries and, and companies are within the index and what their margins are currently. have started this year at a, you know, all-time highs. They've been at all-time highs for a long time. Mm. Um, so that's another... Do you yeah. just give us three in the space of two? <laughs> that's cheating. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> you shouldn't let Kev go yeah. first. <laughs> I like it. That's great. Lincoln, I feel like we've got two from you then. Uh, let's go unemployment. Um, and I'm going to tie in kind of the participation rate with unemployment. So that's all. That's what we kind of mean uh, mm-hmm. when we talk about it. Um, and I heard, uh, again, interesting commentary the other day that you can't have a recession if you don't have increases in unemployment. If you have really low unemployment, even if you get some weird technicalities in the GDP prints, it's not kind of a recession as everyone defines it. So mm. that's another one that's probably another shoe to drop. And mm. participation rates are still low, at least in the US, compared to pre-COVID. Yeah, well, it gets quite technical because, you know, it's kind of how they report things, yeah. like the devil in the details. You do a phone call to someone and... Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's like, did you leave the workforce as part of COVID and yeah. never came back because yeah. you're still looking after your kids? So yeah. it's kind of... it's. I, I'm not sure uh, everyone's kind of worked through the stats on that side of things. Yeah. Mm. So, Drew, just to uh, leaderboard so far, we've got Kev with EPS growth, discount rate, margins. Do you have another one, Kev? (laughs) Sure. Okay, Okay, one more. Uh, The dynamic of monetary and fiscal. That's two. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Everyone is giving us two, so... As a factor, I just see that that is shifting. And, um, you know, markets have got used to reliance on uh, monetary policy being a sort of scapegoat and and support for the whole market. And the go-forward is, um, well, current sittings, monetary policy against you. Um, Maybe you've got fiscal Mm. governments needing to get elected, you know, somewhat offsetting that, being being supportive. Um, So that dynamic is is sort of changing. And that's Mm. going to impact sort of the three-year view. I like it. I like it a lot, actually. It's yeah, obviously the BOE experience recently is um, something that jumps out. Okay, Lincoln. Um, what else have you got for us, mate? Last one. Uh, last one, I think corporate spreads. Ooh, so that's very topical right now. Yeah. So obviously we've got we've we've seen movement in the cash rate, um, but then to define you know what you're going to actually pay as a, as a corporate and a coupon, be it liquid or a liquid world, will be those spreads. And from what we've seen, uh, they've moved up about. 100 bips or so mm. um, and that's on top of obviously other movements and in, in the underlying rates and duration and all that kind of stuff but is that the market clearing rate because we have seen mm. uh, hung debt and all those types of things sitting out there where ultimately the investment bank wasn't able to get it to market because people weren't happy um, with that actual corporate spread that they were getting on top of the other cash rates and so I think you're going to see probably a steady expansion in that as people kind of decide when they actually want to come back into the market because there's a lot of people on the sidelines at the moment. Yeah. Mm. This is that challenge of, you know, floating rate debt is great 
unless you're paying the floating rate debt and it's just gone up 400%. Yeah, exactly. How you, long that takes to feed through the business. You, your, your coupon went up, but yeah. so did your interest payment. Yeah. Mm. Just, yeah, yeah. Similar to pass-through of inflation in infrastructure. Mm. When does that hit the economy? I like this, guys. So we'll, um, we'll keep track and then come back to you in three years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just from Lincoln, in summary, we've got uh, real GDP growth, unemployment, and corporate spreads. Um, Kev's got EPS growth, discount rate, margins, monetary and fiscal policy. Or the relation, the dynamic. The dynamic. The dynamic. The relationship between the two. No more? No more. That's it. Draw a double underline there. Okay, uh, Kev, back to you for the second question, which is, um, as an asset consultant, as a consultant, as an investment consultant, as a researcher, what do you think is the most compelling risk-adjusted market right now? Well, this week, actually, I've just been looking at listed private equity as as an option. Hmm. So obviously, exactly. private assets have not had you know much of a resetting of, of valuations, mm. and and then yeah, naturally everyone you know, is aware of sort of the REIT market and, and how that's been repriced. We don't have much of a we don't really have a listed private market private equity market in Australia, but if you go to say the London Stock Exchange, there'll be uh, entities on there, and it's not necessarily there, there are entities listed entities that are both the private equity sponsor corporate plus so like the Blackstone or yeah, something like that KKRs yeah. and, the, yeah. and the like yeah. partners group we've got one in Switzerland yeah. but then there's also just portfolios that are investments into private yeah. equity like funds. a Brickworks or something would be I mean it's in listed listed yeah, yeah that yeah. kind of idea and and they're sitting so one that I'm quite aware of big sort of top 10 um, private equity manager in the world and and they've got a, an entity that's sitting at about a 48% discount. Hmm. Um, and portfolio companies that they've been selling had been going for a premium. There hasn't been much happening more recently, but um, yeah, they, they still hadn't booked with the ultimate portfolio companies being sold. Um, so that, that's one area to have a look at in terms of, there's a, obviously a massive gap in there. They're going to come together at some point. Um, he hasn't stolen and, yours, has he, Lincoln? Again, yes. No, no, he hasn't. He hasn't, hasn't. Um, that, that is a very interesting area because it brings in multiple complexities. It is ultimately the evaluation of a private equity portfolio. And despite what a lot of people say, they're actually pretty conservative. Um, quite often, you'll get um, a kick up when they actually sell the ultimate company versus, oh, we got it wrong. So it usually starts off a little bit um, conservative, but it's also the um, juxtaposition of that, which is people seeking liquidity in the market. And because it's kind of complex, hard to price, it will usually trade on very slim volumes and the gap or the discount nav always opens up on those types yeah. of things. Hmm. In, in the GFC, it got pretty dire for some of those because they, they, they get caught because um, they have to overcommit on their current assets because it takes time to deploy. So they'll have lines of credit that allow them to do that. So you just got to be careful of their asset liability. Um, scorecard. Scorecard. <laughs> scorecard. Get all, I'm getting all my investment tips here, so <laughs> just uh, note them all down. All right, shifting gears, Lincoln, back to you. First question to you is... Um, why does the stock market go up over the long run? And this is a philosophical question, isn't it? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. yeah okay. Or real world. Real world. Whatever. <laughs> What's the answer? More, more, more people buy than sell, and then, yeah. then it goes up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think if we if we break it down, ultimately you're getting some premium for providing capital for equity. Um, that capital has to go and do something, and if it doesn't go and do something, you should expect 
vaguely the same return for it. So this is when you get into that interesting discussion between passive and active. Uh, most of the time, we're looking at active. So most of the time, they're going to have to actually do something to be any different from that, you know, just gener generic equity market beta. So I mean, what is that going to be? It is going to be things like revenue, um, increase more of it, um, profits, so tighten things up. Um, you can start increasing leverage. It's going to be tough for these days. It's probably going to be reversing out. So if anything, that might be a bit of a headwind at the moment. Uh, and then you can actually get uh, just multiple growth as well. So if you get um, 10 different healthcare companies, package them all together and provide a bigger moat to their revenues, you're likely to be able to sell that for a higher price or a higher multiple, all else equal. I mean, what we're kind of defining there as well is, is basically the private equity cap, um, playbook. Yeah. So it plays out in multiple places, but they're probably trying to do generically the same thing all the way through, right? Kev, you're second this time. If I take this uh, the more the theoretical, it's, it's really just around what is equity? It's ownership of um, production and or IP. And so you are first loss, you want to get paid for taking that risk. Your other options are if you have capital is to provide debt to a certain other owner and expect a, a lower return profile but but ultimately have a, a lower risk profile there certainly will be periods you know there are decades where you'll have a negative return for equity but investors in those periods aren't setting out expecting there to be necessarily a, otherwise you wouldn't do it so although you know we have learned that you know central banks can push interest rate you know, your deposit accounts negative and those sort of things where you know mm. uh, you get pushed to take uh take risk but certainly the, the, the underpinning of why equities sort of go up is I'm, I'm putting aside my current consumption um, I'm saving capital mm -hmm. and I'm expecting a, a, f a better future with that capital better, better consumption options That's do you have to be an optimist to be investing in equities at the moment yeah well, <laughs> I'm, well I'm, 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 I've been texted three times this morning with doom and gloom emails Telling yes. everyone to get out. Yeah, I, I think the way to answer that might be um, that's too philosophical, probably. Yeah, well, you're not going to be able to get 10 percent for doing nothing these days. Yeah. It's going to start getting hard. It's probably going to start getting complex. Um, you can't buy the last 10 years returns, unfortunately. Otherwise, I obviously would. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can get foreign government debt. Though. Yeah, it's, it's better getting you there. Yeah, yeah. cool. A um, couple, couple more questions. Just in terms of your own investing, how much would you say top-down plays a role in your... Not in your role as consultants. Yeah, so... Oh, without no. your investment policies. Yeah, yeah, with my yeah. investment hat on. Half the time, it's, it's all bottom-up, isn't it? For, for, uh, yeah, for you, when you no, no, for yourselves. On your PA, Myself. personal account, how do you invest? I'm almost 100% top-down. Top-down. Really? Yeah. Global macro. Yeah. yeah. Well, because... SAA... What's your hold? Like, what would be your holding period or your outlook, like time horizon? Eighty years. No, well, am I really talking about PA here? <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> three three weeks. Yeah, I was doing through COVID I, on PA. Just was day doing, trading the options. I was doing day trading through <laughs> through certainly nothing in our clients. We do that, but um, yeah. and I did it somewhat as a just a behavioural thing for me to to learn that that that, that tension. But um, sure. <laughs> it was a good bit of fun. But yeah, so my, my typical holding period will be, it will be less than 12 months. It, it's typically just trying to identify what betas I want to get exposure to. So I'm not, I'm not doing any sort of company um, bottom-up analysis. I have invested in individual companies, but it, it, 
it's not so much because I've gone through their earnings forecast. It's more that there's some thematic. I can't get exposure to the certain beta through an ETF, say, um, but the, I know that that company has has a good exposure. Um, hmm. Not doing the level of due diligence that you know, yeah. typically need to do, but uh, yeah. Yeah. And Lincoln's going to be all bottom up, surely. Uh, it's it's a real tough one because um, we spend our time talking to hedge fund managers, private market managers that have done a crazy amount of work, and they get it right about fifty five percent of the time if they're really really good. And I kind of look at that and I'm like, I I, I am literally the person giving them their five percent spread if I'm trying to do <laughs> any of this. <laughs> I will be the loser. And so I think that's the, that, that's the tough thing. That's the reality of things. Um, I think what I probably try to do is a, is a bit of both. I mean, top down, like, what's my horizon? It's pretty long. So everything's going to be probably pretty equity orientated. Uh, as part of my job, I can't, I literally can't invest in any alternatives. <laughs> so that's ironically. Uh, so that takes a, a huge chunk of the market out. And then I think what I probably do from a bottoms up perspective is try to understand themes that I can, uh, try to understand investors in particular companies that I know and trust and like, and then try to understand if the asymmetry of how they were pricing those returns changed. So for example, if you have something with somewhat binary outcomes um, and a manager was okay with those and it had a good cash flow runway for the next three years and it's been marked down 50%, well, that's kind of interesting, right? Because it, it, it just got cheaper and the binary outcomes might not have been related to the general um, macro economy at all. So I think I, uh, from a bottom-up perspective, I find those types of things interesting. Like Drew, what about you, mate? I wasn't uh, expecting the question. I was not expecting the question. If you listen to the last three podcasts, you can tell that I do a lot of bottom-up, probably more than I should in that portfolio because I end up with a lot of falling knives and stocks. So 98% <laughs> bottom-up, 2%. <laughs> Top down. <laughs> okay. Um, and underperform proudly underperforming <laughs> for seven years. <laughs> Don't tell my wife. Lincoln, maybe back to you. What's the uh, number one question you're getting from clients right now? At the moment, because we're dealing with institutional portfolios, um, quite often we're dealing with what's known as the denominator effect. So ultimately, um, you've got your asset allocation and um, 20% of it might be in alternatives or privates. Um, now you could say they are uh, they haven't been as affected by the market as much. You could be cynical and just say they haven't been properly valued yet. But ultimately, they're far larger pro- proportion than they were a year ago. Yeah. Mm. As well as that, um, the overall value of people's portfolio has also decreased. The equities and bonds are both down. Exactly. Digits, yeah. And so you're you're ending up with a situation whereby you are more illiquid than you Mm -hmm. wanted to be from your asset allocation point of view. And you have made promises to these funds to ultimately um, future commitments. And so you have liabilities that are sitting out there over and above your actual exposure right now. So in a worst case scenario, all of those liabilities would get called at once. That's not going to happen, but that was a problem in 2008 and it's rearing its head again big time now. So a lot of the questions that we get asked are around what, are the, what is the actual illiquidity of my portfolio and where do we think um, the actual asset allocations are going to go? Yeah. Um, so it's usually, it's, it's kind of like um, 
on a more institutional perspective, problems that people might be facing in terms of their portfolio, their house, um, the illiquid part of their portfolio. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone's trying to kind of um, fit squares into circles at the moment. Beat Very that, Kev. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Um, okay, so what we're getting asked at the moment is um, actually coming out of from the clients being superannuation funds, platforms, and wealth groups, looking for how do they manage what are their fund manager exposures. Um, so if you're a platform, you might have a couple hundred funds on the, on the menu, and how do you... How do you quantitatively review that? So we've built a factor model that tries to assess return profiles, tries to sort of tease out systematically if you've got if you've got you know thirty managers that are underperforming in Aussie equities, uh, which of them do I really want to spend time and effort? Um, which do I? And those are the ones um, where I can't understand why they've underperformed, or or it's likely down to skill error. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it's teasing out, you know, given I know the track record of that manager, I can map it to certain factors um, and then have those factors underperformed and that's, that's, that's given me a signal to, yeah. um, you know, whether it's value, quality, momentum, you know, we've got plenty of factors that, that we assess, but across asset classes. So it gets more interesting when you get to fixed interest, you got duration and credit to, to manage those factors. So, yeah, we've got a, a system there that's kept us busy and, and yeah, trying to use it both as a negative screen as I've sort of talked through there about, you know, what are the problem child assets I need to put my time and effort into reviewing, but then we're using it positively for allocating to fund managers to say, you know, here are here are a short list of fund managers that look interesting because they're showing I might have a view about wanting to get exposure to XYZ factors, but they also are showing sort of sustainable ability to add value, skill, mm-hmm. stock selection, um, the, the bit that we can't explain from a, a beta exposure. And, that, and that's, they're the active managers I'm, I'm willing you know, to pay fees and, and allocate capital to that are, have, you know, mm. are able to show um, skill beyond passive uh, exposure to beta. Mm. And that's kind of the interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, everyone has scarce time, but you've got different specializations. So from a, a consultant point of view, what you're mainly trying to do is provide relativity to your underlying clients such that they can focus on other things and kind of not uh, necessarily wonder that why is this stock down relative to this or how's the portfolio doing relative to that. It's kind of just providing that information at their fingertips uh, and really kind of passing a crazy amount of information that's flowing around the world into a digestible format that hopefully isn't too much uh, financial gobbledygook. Can I deliver this really tough last question? Yes. Last question? yes. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this one. <laughs> What's one thing you believe about investing that few people agree with you on? And I think Lincoln has to go first. <laughs> the higher the fees in hedge fund managers, the better the performance. It's a big one. It's a big one. Yeah. So normally it's kind of 2 and 20, right? Mm. Any hedge fund I've seen with fees four over that. 40. I've seen 4 and 40. And I would tell you, I would take all of my PA and put it in there <laughs> straight away, but you can get no capacity in it. Yeah. Yeah, right. So this is the, that's the that kicker. Good. Mm. It's like, it's not a bad thing. It's not a Ponzi. It's, it's, oh, it better not be a Ponzi. It's not, it's not a Ponzi. It's not a Ponzi. We've done the, we've done the back office as well. Yeah, the auditor does exist. It's not a strip mall somewhere. <laughs> um, it, it, it's about understanding what you, you get what you pay for. 
Yeah. And it's about understanding fees as a percentage of alpha and beta. If you were just getting a whole lot of beta in a return stream, you just don't really care. It could be so expensive. Mm. If you were getting a massive chunk of alpha, what's the actual cost for that alpha? It's really, really expensive because it's really, really scarce. Yeah. Mm. Again, top that, Kev. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I've got a problem because I've sort of somewhat got the same answer. Um yeah, because I mean, my view of the world is sort of if I've got a, we don't tend to have a, a fixed fee budget with clients, but I want to spend my fee budget wherever it is, where I've got conviction on that alpha. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if 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 I've got a manager that is, as you say, primarily providing me with with beta, I don't want to be paying performance fees. Yep. Beta is pretty much um, for free, isn't it? It's like one of the only industries where you can get the average for free. Yes. Should be close yeah. to it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then similarly, like a, a one thing to think through is like a, a market neutral strategy. Maybe I don't want to pay a base fee. I only want to pay performance because well, they're not actually giving me any beta. And the interesting and thing is at the moment, a lot of those ARBs are based on a cash rate. Mm. So quite often cash should be your hurdle, hurdle irrelevant, irrelevant to kind of Yeah. 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 Mm. Um, but uh, maybe I'll flip it the other way is to say that the time and one thing that maybe a consequence of investment committees is how much time is spent on manager review, monitoring, operation due diligence, all those sort of things are needed. But if you if you think about the, the budgeting of time of, of a decision-making committee and the amount of time, all the studies say, that's allocation is going to give you 90%. <laughs> right? And appreciate in, in, in alternatives, certainly... It, it, it matters because the mix of active and also of alpha and beta is quite different. But you know, if you if we're talking broad equities, the amount of time that an investment committee typically spends talking about a fund ma- at a fund manager level, as yeah. opposed to the construction of multiple fund managers and how that blend works, and then more importantly, how much we're actually allocating to a certain yeah. asset class. Um, you know, ideally, you budget the time with the. Com- Align somewhat with the sort of impact Ideally. of the decisions. Yeah. Ideally, yeah. we all tend we all tend to focus on the stock or the uh, manager it, or the investment committees. Typically, go through the woods finding one th- one tree to chop down. Find the red one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. whichever one's red. <laughs> like it, guys. Yeah. I actually enjoyed just sitting back letting you guys just riff on that. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. <laughs> that was great, uh, Lincoln. If people wanted to get in touch or reach out to you hear from you where where would they go uh so the main website's www.alborn.com so a l b o u r n e mm-hmm. um uh and yeah we're we're obviously kind of sitting in more the institutional side of things but there is a there's more of a, a community Allborn village type website as well mm, so, i did yeah. say that yeah um, it's kind of it's quite strange and a little bit quirky like like the firm but yeah it sits out there yeah, cool. I'll put links in the show notes. And Kev Atchison, atchisonconsultants.com.au? No, just, just Atchison. Just Atchison. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, premium yeah, domain name. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Got in there early. Yeah, uh, yeah .com.au. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. Cool. Thank you very much. No worries. And Drew, pleasure, mate. As always, modelpartners.com.au. LinkedIn, Instagram. <laughs> Not Twitter. <laughs> Instagram for professional yeah. DMs only. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right, like it. No, thanks, gents. It's great chatting. Cheers. Thanks, everyone.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.